Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Kevin McCarthy's pandering to a racist troll, Marjorie Taylor Greene, that resulted in Congresswoman Ilhan Omar being taken off the House Foreign Affairs Committee in a craven display of racist scapegoating made even more hypocritical since it was done in the name of anti-Semitism at the behest of Nazi sympathizers in the House Freedom Caucus. Joining us to discuss what it is like to be a person of colour and a Muslim American whose loyalty to this country is constantly questioned is Wajahat Ali, a columnist for the Daily Beast, public speaker, recovering lawyer and tired dad of three cute kids. He is currently a Western States Centre Senior Fellow for the Common Good Program and Leadership Initiative to Combat Anti-Semitism, whose latest book, just out on paperback, is Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. Then we'll examine the diplomatic fallout from a Chinese spy balloon drifting over America, which caused Secretary of State Blinken to cancel top-level meetings with Chinese officials. Joining us to discuss whether Xi Jinping authorized this intrusion and whether the leadership is testing the U.S. is Victor Xi, a professor in China and Pacific Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. He is currently engaged in constructing a large database on biographical information of elites in China and is the editor of Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability, Duration, Institutions and Financial Conditions. And his latest book is Coalitions of the Weak, Elite Politics in China from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. Then finally, we'll assess how the public has been conditioned by Wall Street economists, media pundits, and GOP propaganda to believe the U.S. economy is in terrible shape, crippled by a recession and inflation, when we just had the best jobs numbers and lowest unemployment since 1969. Joining us is Pavlina Cheneva, a professor of economics at Bard College and a research fellow at the Levy Economics Institute. She's also the co-editor of Full Employment and Price Stability, The Macroeconomic Vision, and her latest book is The Case for a Job Guarantee. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Wajahat Ali, who is a Daily Beast columnist, public speaker, recovering attorney, a tired dad of three cute kids. He's currently a Western States Center Senior Fellow for the Common Good Program and Leadership Initiative to Combat Anti-Semitism. He's also a Senior Fellow at Auburn Seminary, And his work has appeared in the New York Times, Atlantic, Washington Post, Guardian, and the New York Review of Books. And his latest book just out in paperback is Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. Welcome to Background Briefing. Wahajahat Ali. Thank you, Ewan. That was was amazing. You you, you just promoted my LinkedIn profile and made me sound awesome. (laughs) Well... Arguably, you are awesome in the way that you've able to tell a story of the ugly side of America as it happened to both your dad and to you, but tell it with compassion and charm and wit. And I guess it comes down to, you know, what you say towards the end of your book is that America is, is insane, but it's also lovable. Yeah, like many of our family members, right? Uh, <laughs> you re- you regret inviting them to the family barbecue, but you realize they also have a place. And despite the pain that you might suffer from their insults and passive aggressiveness, uh, you know you, you can't help uh, but be stuck with them. You can't quit them. And so that's how I how it is with America. You know, I can't quit America. You have to when you're a person of color, often Ian, or you're on the wrong side of, 
of advantage. You have to fight for a country, America, that often doesn't fight for you, and you find yourself loving a country which doesn't love you back. It becomes a, a, a an endearing, enduring, but sometimes masochistic relationship. Right. Well, I think actually what uh, the Reverend Sharpton said in the eulogy for the latest victim of police violence in the case of in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Right. Tyree Nichols. Right. So it, it, the people who have lived this the most and have experienced it and, and where we can actually draw inspiration from as black people, you know, uh, just the, just finding hope and being resilient uh, in a country that sees you as less than human, that uh, saw your children as uh, slaves and a labor force. And, and the fact that, you know, black people have always not just fought for the country that tries to suppress them, but whenever they get their rights, the rest of us get our rights as well. So it's one of the situations where if you're listening right now and you're like, ah, those black folks, why are they always complaining? No, 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 they're the ones fighting for the American dream. And thanks to their struggle and thanks to their resistance, they've helped stretch and expand this country so that people like my father could come, thanks to the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, Ian, that only came about as a result of the Civil Rights Act. Well, I thought that the story of your father, Abu, is is so extraordinary. And I'm also an immigrant to the country, but what happened to me was so different. I mean, your father was a graduate student in doing research at Northern Illinois University, and he tried to get a, a student visa extension. He went to the immigration department, and he was told by the officer, quote, you Arabs come here to F our American girls. And needless to say, his uh, visa extension was denied, and he was ordered deported. And the only reason he wasn't deported was at the last minute a young attorney said, I can help you out, and he set him up for an Einstein visa, the same visa, of course, that Melania Trump got uh, for posing naked on a, on a <laughs> bear rug. <laughs> I don't know whether you've noticed whether or not uh, Melania Trump is a genius, but the long and the short of it is your father was able to stay in the United States. And you, of course, were at Berkeley uh, studying uh, when... 9-11 happened, and when Muslims replaced communists as America's enemy number one. And that's that's it, right? You know, my father's story, I think, is a microcosm of uh, America, uh, of the two sides of America. The America of white supremacy, in which you are told, go back to where you came from. And my father, who's not Arab, by the way, but Pakistani, apparently was the threat to this white immigration officer. And yet... It was a young white attorney who then exercised generosity and compassion and then helped him stay. And it was a sliding door moment, right? Because if my father would have left, I probably wouldn't be here yet, right? Yeah. Uh, my father would not have been able to experience the American dream. And then you fast forward to 9-11, a macrocosm, a baptism by fire, a fork in the timeline, where yet again, the sliding door moment of how America will respond. And America responded with madness. You know, people forget sometimes <laughs> that after 9-11, America lost his damn mind. We canceled French fries. We used to call them freedom fries. We canceled the Dixie Chicks, who are now known as the Chicks, uh, just because the lead singer criticized uh, George W. Bush. They took tractors over their CDs. They made a bonfire of their CDs, right? And then overnight, the rest of us, born and raised in America, we became the villain. We became the boogeyman. We became the bad guy, right? It's like this remake in American history. The perpetual villain is the black man, but there's also the indigenous American, the Japanese American, the Irish Catholics, the Italians. It's like the movie Scream. Every 10 years, they just do a reboot, and they kind of replace the characters. And after 9-11, tag, you're it. Oh, Muslims, and anyone who looks Muslimy, you're the bad guy. And that's what I learned. That's when I learned, rather, that, oh, being an American when you're a person of con uh, a color, it's conditional. Your, your Americanness can be revoked Instantly. You're American with an asterisk. Well, we saw Ilan Omar, Representative Ilan Omar. There revoked. you go. And I want to mention also that she also plugged your book, uh, Wajahad Ali, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. She said, in, in prose at times hilarious and at other times deeply moving, Wajahad Ali chronicles a uniquely American experience, all will benefit from reading his story. And, of course, she was so useful and, 
important to the House Foreign Affairs Committee because she asked very uncomfortable questions and had a very different perspective. And as we know, in most of the third world, and particularly the global south, is not supporting the US and, and NATO in this horrible war that Putin has, has waged against Ukraine, where he's destroying a country before our eyes. And Omar is the kind of voice you need to reach out to the people in the rest of the world that don't see us as the shining city on the hill, etc. So it's a, it's very sad what just happened. It's, it's, it's very sad, but is it surprising? And it, everything comes full circle because based on what I was saying, they, they being the House GOP Republicans, attacked Ilhan Omar, a black woman who's a Muslim, who wears hijab, who used to be a refugee, right? It's a trifecta. It's a hat trick of like it's like this movie weird science if you saw in the 80s where these two uh, teenage boys constructed the perfect woman in the computer right kelly lebrock it's like they could not construct a better boogeyman to satiate their xenophobia islamophobia and fear and so they have made ilhan umar into the quote anti-semitic boogeyman which is so comical dark humor here ian that the person who are applauding the people who are applauding her removal are people like marjorie taylor green who talked about Jewish space lasers, and who spoke at a white nationalist's conference, Nick Fuentes, who's one of the leading anti-Semites, right? So here we have the GOP literally embracing the worst anti-Semites and the worst anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, such as the replacement theory, that has radicalized terrorists to commit violence, and yet they're accusing Ilhan Omar of being the anti-Semite, and they said, oh, she has to be removed from the committee because she's an extremist. And you're sitting there th thinking to yourself, of course, this is America, because who did Donald Trump pick on? Who have Republicans picked on consistently? Ilhan Omar and the squad, the four women of color in particular who in the U.S. Congress, you know, AOC, uh, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar. And speaking about go back to where you came from, what did Donald Trump say to these four women? People forget. These women should stop complaining, go back to their countries, clean those countries up and come back. Well, guess what? They're all U.S. citizens. Many of them are born and raised in this country. But it didn't matter, Ian, because mm. they're women of color and they're Muslim. And as such, they don't truly, quote unquote, belong. They are, at best, sidekicks or villains. And you see this manifested through Ilhan Omar that she becomes the pinata and the boogeyman for their xenophobia, their Islamophobia, and their racism. And the irony being they kick her out for being a, quote unquote, anti-Semite, even though they're the ones literally in bed with anti-Semites. It's a beautiful American story. It, it, it goes back to my dad. Right. You know, that one guy said, you come here only to F our girls. Go back. Right. Well, we'll play the clip of, not of Ilan Omar's passionate speech, and she was very powerful, and she said, you know, I'm coming back, and she will come back. These crazies can't last more than two years in charge of the house. America may be insane, but the lovable part, I think, will prevail. But just before we play that clip, just to put it in context, this spineless wretch of a man, the new speaker, McCarthy, he obviously made a deal with Marjorie Taylor Greene mm -hmm. to get her vote and to get the vote of the crazies. He basically, you know, agreed to payback, to her payback, her petty vengeance against Ilana Omar. And as you point out, it's beyond a double standard and all hypocrisy, the idea that, she, you know, she's well, Ian, accusing Ian, before, her of being anti-Semitic. Before you play the clip, and I'm glad you brought that up, you know, the Democrats removed two of these extremists, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, from their committees, not for their anti-Semitism, not for their conspiracy theories, not for their unhinged views, but because these two existing Republican congressmen who have been rewarded by Kevin McCarthy and given plum assignments incited violence and provoked violence against their colleagues. Which colleagues? AOC and Ilan Omar. That's why they were removed. Exactly. And so thanks to this bloodlust and retribution, these anti-Semites who are violent, <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, have now extracted their blood, if you will, and kicked off Ilan Omar. It's just all disgusting. And just to, before the play, play the clip, AOC is responding to a Republican congresswoman from New York who said, oh, this is just about consistency. So let's play uh, AOC's response. As 
also, as a fellow New Yorker, I think one of the things that we should talk about here is also one of the disgusting legacies after 9-11 has been the targeting and racism against Muslim Americans throughout the United States of America. And this is an extension of that legacy. Consistency, there is nothing consistent with the Republican Party's continued attack except for the racism and incitement of violence against women of color in this body. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life, and you all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about an abdic a, a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who, have who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an, an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. Don't tell me because I didn't get a single apology when my life was threatened. Thank you. And that is a response from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the one minute she was allowed on the floor to point out the hypocrisy, the absurdity of what was happening in terms of booting Representative Ilhan Omar off the Foreign Affairs Committee, which even some of the Republicans, by the way, were caught in an elevator saying right. this was the dumbest vote we ever had. So, I and guess not only did they say that, apparently uh, they said not, not only was this the dumbest vote we ever had, we just made Ilhan Omar into a martyr. Right. Well, I hope that's true, and I think it will be, in the sense that uh, she said, I'm coming back. And maybe it's wishful thinking on my part, because I... I see the the emergence of American fascism and Taylor Greene and, and Gosar, uh, the unabashed face of that. And going back to the dichotomy that you bring up, the idea that America is insane but also lovable. If Trump comes back and he is, after all, still the head of the Republican Party, mm. it's all over. So, I mean, your father, we, who we talked about, he was thinking of going to New Zealand or somewhere in 2020 if Trump got re-elected. The fact that Trump's still around is in itself, I think, appalling. How could a, a traitor and a criminal have gotten this far? The KKK is still around. Racists are still around. Anti-Semites are still around. Nazis are having a moment again, right? This is part and parcel of America, and this is the part of America that black people, brown people have tried to warn our white fellow citizens about, but we were unfortunately ignored. You know, oh, we live in a post-racial society. Oh, we elected Obama. There's Beyonce. People eat non bread now. Get over it. And we're like, no, no, no. You guys still don't see. And the reason why people don't see, Ian, is privilege is blind to its power and sometimes blind to its own abuses of power, right? You don't see because you weren't supposed to see. You weren't expected to see. You didn't have to see. But now I think what Trump has done in a strange way, Ian, is that it's so blunt, it's so ugly, it's so in your face, right, Marjorie Taylor Greene's extremism, that now I think a lot of people are forced to confront it. And I'm glad you use the word fascism, which I've been trying to use for several years now. Slowly but surely people realize, oh, this is a fascist movement. I think people realize, oh, you can't just sit on your two hands and expect the right thing to happen. You have to fight for democracy. And we're seeing this, like you mentioned, in Ukraine, because there are forces, authoritarian forces, who want to take this country back, Ian, to 1953, you know, during the time of segregation, when the white man was great again. And so this is a fight. It's a fight for our generation. And we have to fight and confront these forces. And I'm glad you mentioned it. I keep telling people, Donald Trump hasn't gone anywhere. He's still the presumptive 2024 Republican presidential candidate. And we have to hope that we can build this multicultural coalition to defeat him yet again. But he will not go quietly. White supremacy is self-destructive, always has been. But before it gets wiped out, it's going to try to wipe the rest of us out as well. So we have to resist. And, of course, Trump said uh, about the Ukraine war that Putin didn't really want to go to war, but but Biden forced him into it. So, you know, he's still paying off Putin for whatever Putin did to get him elected. He's, uh, he's, he's a very good publicist for Putin. Like if, if Donald Trump could be rewarded and given A marks, for any job he's done in his life, I would say the only A he gets is uh, kissing Putin's ass. A plus. So, so just in, in the last minute here then, watch out, Ali, let's talk about the possibility of the lovable side prevailing over the insane side of America. 
you can't be passive. I mean, you're using humour, which I think is the most effective tool to ridicule these people because they are absurd. And there was a play written about Hitler, The Resistible Rise of Arturo We, that makes that sort of case where Bertolt Brecht reduces Hitler down to a minor gangster trying to take over the cauliflower concession in the Chicago markets. Mm-hmm. So in as you say in the book, you know, the, the Americans elected a reality TV star and a failed businessman. The guy's an absurdity. So humor works up to an extent, but I think you've got to really get tough with fascists because they're mean and nasty and they're brutal. And, you know, you can't go to a street fight with a butter knife. Right. And, you know, God bless Michelle Obama when she said, when they go low, we go high. I disagree with fascists. When they go low, you bear crawl and you take out their legs. You take out their knees. You have to win and fight by any means necessary. So that means if you're at home listening right now, you're like, what can I do? You can run for school board because they're trying to take over school boards. If you're a doctor, hospital boards. In business, make sure that you have diversity initiatives, that you do outreach, right? If you're at home and you're like, I'm just a mom or a dad, the way you model your language, your behavior for your children, uh, read them books, buy the books that they're banning right now. Know your history, right? Because the way fascists win is by distorting the truth and rewriting history and keeping people ignorant. And so the way you fight back is through, wait for it, being woke, being aware, being intentional, and at every single level resisting them, not bending the knee like so many corporations, not bending the knee like so many in the media, but you resist them, you call them out, you mock them to their face, you belittle them. And we have the numbers, Ian. I always tell people that whenever the majority actually organizes, guess what? We fight back and we win. Just taking that school board example, each time they try to intimidate and threaten educators, when that local community, even in some red states, says enough is enough and they actually organize and show up, we shut them down. So in your local community and in your home, be aware, be intentional and do something, anything to fight back against fascists. Because guess what? Today they're coming after Muslims and Ilhan Omar. Tomorrow they will come after you. Well, Wajahad Ali, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Wajahad Ali, who is a Daily Beast columnist, a public speaker, recovering attorney, a tired dad of three cute kids. He's currently the Western States Center Senior Fellow for the Common Good Program and Leadership Initiative to Combat Anti-Semitism. He's also a Senior Fellow at Auburn Seminary, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic Washington Post, Guardian, and New York Review of Books. And his latest book just out in paperback is Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. We're going to take a brief station break back examining the diplomatic fallout from a Chinese spy balloon drifting over America, which caused Secretary of State Blinken to cancel top-level meetings with Chinese officials. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Victor Shi, who's a professor in China and Pacific Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. He's published widely on the politics of Chinese banking policies, fiscal policies, and exchange rate. And he's currently engaged in a study on how the coalition-forming strategies of founding leaders had a profound impact on the evolution of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as constructing a large database on biographical information of elites in China. He's the author of Factions and Finance in China, Elite Conflict and Inflation, and the editor of Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability, Duration, Institutions and Financial Conditions. And his latest book is Coalitions of the Week, Elite Politics in China, From Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. Welcome to Background Briefing, Victor Xi. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Victor. And there's a lot of puzzlement over this Chinese spy balloon that was shot down off the Carolinas on Saturday within the 12-mile limit. Apparently, on Wednesday, President Biden had ordered the Pentagon to shoot it down, but to wait until it was safe so that debris didn't impact people on the ground. 
it went across the Aleutians, Alaska, then down Canada, and crossed into the United States a few days ago in Montana, near where there's U.S. nuclear missile silos, and of course that raised alarms. The The balloon itself is quite huge. The solar panels that are dangling from it are apparently the length of three transit buses, and apparently they're used to steer the balloon. They're like, they act like sails. So the Chinese government is now calling for calm and chastising the Republicans and Mike Pompeo and others for being so bellicose. But they can't surely get away with this ridiculous excuse that it's a weather balloon. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it does take on the character of uh, some kind of test uh, from China uh, on, you know, how the United States would react uh, to an infringement of its sovereignty, you know, in such a blatant manner, uh, how united uh, the two political parties would be, how the Biden administration would react. Um, so there, there's a lot of discussion right now, you know, among us uh, China specialists about whether or not it was the right thing for Blinken to not go to China or not. Uh I personally think that it is the right thing to do, you know, given uh, what China is doing. And we can get into, you know, why I think that. Uh, but but I think it definitely is a test uh, from the highest level, from Xi Jinping himself. So you don't think that this could be some rogue People's Liberation Army operation or intelligence operation? No, I don't think that at all. So we know that um, China has been testing these balloons for a few years now. You know, I gather there was another balloon, you know, that was near Hawaii uh, during the Trump administration. Um, and the decision to let it uh, float or guide it into mainland United States is a very sensitive one that definitely would have required the the permission of Xi Jinping himself. Um, you know, of course, if the balloon is malfunctioning or whatnot, um, I mean, I, I guess there's some possibility that that is happening. Um, and that's kind of what China is saying. Uh, but given that, you know, all the pictures shows that the solar panels are still attached. Uh, so unless something in the internal mechanics of it failed, um, there's no reason to believe that it doesn't have the power to steer itself, you know, away from mainland United States. So the timing then, if they're testing the U.S., did they time this for Blinken's scheduled visit on February the 5th and 6th? Yeah, I think they may well have, uh, just to see, you know, um, how the U.S. would respond uh, to it. Um yeah, no, I, mean, I think, you know, unless there's some, you know, wind pattern that I'm not, and I'm, I'm of course, not uh, an expert in high atmospheric weather and wind pattern, you know, unless there's some reason to, to float it in that particular time because of wind pattern, uh, it seems to coincide with Blinken's planned trip uh, to China. And what explains the balloon over Latin America? Um well, so, so I think, of course, China is testing the capabilities and the different usage of this balloon. And we don't know exactly, of course, what kinds of electronics and so on and so forth is attached to the balloon. Uh, so they probably would want to test it in you know, all kinds of different environments, but especially in the Americas, because that is quite far away from China. Um, China probably has many better means of um, surveilling neighboring countries, you know, like Afghanistan, Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but for the Americas, you know, which is quite a distance away, uh, balloon and satellites are pretty much uh, the only good options for China. Well, Secretary of State Blinken, who, who was in South Korea on Friday, uh, he said he spoke with the China's Foreign Minister Wang. And he said he made clear that the presence of this surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law. And then he went on to say it's even more irresponsible coming on the eve of a long-planned visit. So it looks like the U.S. side thinks it was timed with his visit. So I guess 
he's taking it personally, right? It was meant to be <laughs> personal. Well, uh, no, I, I think uh, I'm sure the administration uh, had a deep think about how you know the U.S. should respond to this. Uh, and of course, we haven't seen the end of U.S. responses, right? There could be other things that, that are being lined up besides Blinken not going there. But I, I do think that the decision to delay or even cancel Blinken's visit to China is the right one, because I, I think, you know, this, of course, takes on the characteristic of a test. And the United States, uh, both from a domestic political perspective and also in terms of communicating with China, cannot uh, send a signal that, oh, you know, this is not a big deal. You can go ahead and send other balloons to the United States. Uh, that, of course, will um, invite a lot, a lot of criticism from the Republicans uh, to the Biden administration, as well as send China the signal that this is not a big deal, uh, which may then invite China to send other balloons forward uh, in the future, which, you know, I don't know whether how useful those balloons are for China's intelligence gathering, but nonetheless, it's still uh, an infringement of U.S. sovereignty and should not be encouraged in, in any form. Uh, so I think, you know, not delaying the trip uh, is a credible signal by the Biden administration. Uh, and so overall, I think uh, that that uh, is the right thing to do. Well, there's a lot of criticism, of course, of Biden coming from the Republicans, and in particular from the former Secretary of State under Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, who's basically saying we should be shooting the thing down and that this administration, Biden administration, is suffering from a lack of deterrence. The whole world is watching to see if the United States is serious. The Chinese are probing, they are prodding, and they're trying to figure out how far they can go. So it's become a sort of domestic election year. I mean, we know Pompeo's written a book where he apparently says that the January the 6th insurrection was no big deal. But he's obviously one of the candidates uh, out there, along with Nikki Haley, is supposed to announce in a few days. So was that what the Chinese foreign ministry was speaking about, trying to calm down voices? Most of the criticism is, is coming from the right, right? More or less saying that Biden is, is too weak and should get tough. So... What do you yeah, make of the yeah. domestic politics? I mean, yeah, of course, you know, this is a good opportunity for the Republicans to attack the Biden administration. I mean, that's, you know, probably is the main motivation for, for not for Blinken to not go to China at this point. Uh, obviously, if he had gone to China, even if he had, you know, uh, said some very critical things, um, you know, against the Chinese government, uh, the Republicans would have interpreted it as, you know, kowtowing to Beijing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so for domestic political reasons, he, he didn't go. Uh, but also, I think, you know, for foreign policy reasons. But of course, one must recall that uh, the last time the balloon was at least very close to U.S. territory was during the Trump administration. I think um, the account that I read was that Trump himself also wanted to shoot it down, but then the Pentagon back then talked uh, the administration out of doing so. So this time around, uh, I think, you know, obviously, while the balloon floated on continental United States, there's always some risk that it could uh, fall and injure people. Uh, I still think that uh, there's potentially a kind of counterintelligence element to it whereby uh, the United States would like to collect additional information on the entire apparatus. And shooting it down over the ocean also gives it a better chance that, you know, some parts of the balloon uh, would be relatively intact, uh, which would allow the U.S. to analyze it. So is this then back to speculating about Chinese leadership and chain of command? You're absolutely sure, Victor Xi, that there's no way that this was not authorized by Xi Jinping. Yeah, so unless the balloon really did malfunction, um, but I think the U.S. probably has a way to try to figure that out. Uh, and it doesn't, the Pentagon has come to the conclusion that that is not the case, that this is an intentional spy, you know, apparatus. Um, this will have required the permission of 
the Central Military Commission, uh, which is chaired by Xi Jinping. And internally, Xi Jinping has uh, repeatedly stated, uh, repeatedly emphasized uh, that he himself alone is in charge of the Chinese military and all major operations uh, and infringing on the sovereignty of the United States is a major operation. Um, you know, especially given how large the device is, right? So it's two buses and so on and so forth. I find it very hard to believe that anyone uh, below Xi Jinping, even, you know, one of the vice chairmen uh, would have dared to authorize this alone. And remember, you know, the vice chairman of the Central Military Commission were picked because they are seen as so absolutely loyal to Xi Jinping himself. And so they would have been very compelled to report um, this plan to Xi Jinping for his approval before uh, actually launching it. Sure. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, then, Victor Xi, my understanding is that maybe there's some rethinking of the wolf warrior diplomacy uh, that's alienated a number of the neighbors of China. On the other hand, this indicates that Xi is following kind of, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy or the lack there, lack of diplomacy, I guess, in this case. Is there any rethinking about whether or not being tough and aggressive and is helping China or not? Do you think there's a rethinking going on or not? Well, I mean, you know, um, I don't want to characterize what's happening today as a new Cold War, uh, but there, there are some uh, similarities with, with the original Cold War. Um, so this is kind of uh, reminiscent to the transition between the Stalin years, you know, which, of course, was very aggressive vis-a-vis the United States, the Korean War, and so on and so forth, to the Khrushchev years. So the Khrushchev years, things got a little bit better, but it, it didn't mean that Khrushchev did not try to test the boundaries of the United States. I mean, starting with, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which was very, very serious, and this is nowhere near that level of uh, aggressiveness. Um, so I think as China continues to get more powerful economically, uh, geopolitically, um, it will continue to push the boundaries. Maybe China has discovered that you know using this very aggressive rhetorics um, really didn't really bring a lot of benefits and actually brought a lot of harm. Uh, it united you know a lot of different countries against China, uh, but pushing boundaries on border issues. Uh, even on maybe potentially some geoeconomic issues, uh, can really test the resolve of the United States uh, and also potentially create space where China can expand its power and influence. So I, I think this kind of testing will continue. Well, Victor Xi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Victor Shi, who's a professor in China and Pacific Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. He's published widely on the politics of Chinese banking policies, fiscal policies, and exchange rates. And he's currently engaged in a study on how the coalition formation strategies of founding leaders had a profound impact on the evolution of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as constructing a large database on biographical information of elites in China. He's the author of Factions and Finance in China, Elite Conflict and Inflation, and the editor of Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability, Duration Institutions and Financial Conditions. And his latest book is Coalitions of the Weak, Elite Politics in China from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of how the public has been conditioned by Wall Street economists, media pundits, and GOP propaganda to believe the U.S. economy is in terrible shape, crippled by recession and inflation, when we just had the best job numbers and lowest unemployment since 1969.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Pavlina Geneva, who is a professor of economics at Bard College and a research scholar at the Levy Economics Institute. She's also the co-editor of Full Employment and Price Stability, The Macroeconomic Vision. And her latest book is The Case for a Job Guarantee. Welcome to Background Briefing, Pavlina Geneva. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us and talking about a job guarantee. The record jobs report that just came out has stunned all economists, from what I understand. I guess you included, right? That the expectation was that 185,000 jobs would be added in January. Instead, it's turned out that 517,000 jobs were added last month. It was certainly good news, a welcome good news, and a, a reminder that uh, we have good momentum in the labor markets. And quite frankly, while I was anticipating a lower number, I believe that we can go even further below the 3.4% unemployment rate that we are seeing today. And that, of course, is a fifty over fifty-year record. It's uh, the last time it was at three point four percent. The unemployment rate was back in nineteen sixty-nine. So that's a real jaw-dropping statistic. It is true. And uh, another kind of piece of good news is that we just lived through a very severe recession, and we were able to recover payrolls quite quickly. And this is very different from what we have seen in the last um, 50 years, really. We've been typically experiencing jobless recoveries, protracted kind of sluggish uh, periods of growth. And here we are, uh, two years after the COVID-induced crisis, that we are at historically low unemployment levels, which tells us that public policy has tools. It can act boldly, quickly, and bring jobs back. Um, But I I do have to say that we still have seen millions of people leaving the labor force who are ready to take a job uh, if one were available now. And that um, that is behind this 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 trend that is behind this rosy picture is uh, is notable because part of these low unemployment numbers are due to the fact that about 5.7 million people are not looking for work and that there are about 4 million people who are working part-time but would like to have full-time jobs. So yes, good news all around, but there is room to grow. So Biden, I'm sure, will talk about this on Tuesday at the State of the Union and take some credit, but he's not really good at taking credit. I mean, he's had a very thin majority and he's passed more legislation than most recent presidents have in two years as opposed to four years or eight years. So he's doing extraordinarily well. And in particular, you know, on the jobs, I think he's created over 11 million jobs in just two years. So I don't know whether it's a messaging problem, but the point that he made on Friday announcing this good news was that his economic policy is working. He said, I'm trying, I'm rebuilding the economy, rebuilding our manufacturing base, and I'm rebuilding the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And that's happening, isn't it? This is a pro-worker economy, not a Republican economy giving tax cuts to the rich. It is a different approach to economic stabilization altogether, absolutely. Um We are prioritizing public investment. We are prioritizing um, industries, strategic investment, addressing environmental concerns. You know, and we um, have for such a long time neglected many areas of public life, especially infrastructure investment. So um, kind of, you know, strengthening uh, this kind of foundation for the economy has been uh, a really welcome approach. You are quite right. The policies that were implemented um, were uh, big fiscal packages that we hadn't seen for, again, decades. Um, We have not uh, focused our attention to the financial sector, which is what we did in 2008 and 2009 crisis, which I think was 
the reason why labor markets didn't recover quickly, even though the banking sector recovered. We didn't prioritize tax cuts to the wealthy. All this is good news. The question for me is, uh, did we come out of the pandemic with better jobs, better conditions for working families than we had going into the pandemic. I think there we have not made nearly as, as good a progress as we, we could have. And we are seeing some wage increases for sure. This is important because working families have seen stagnant wages since the 70s. They have seen falling real wages and on occasion a recovery will bring some increases. Um, so in the last two years, we have seen more than we've seen in the last um, you know, 50 years. But again, uh, when we have about 15 million people who are either officially unemployed outside of the labor market or working part time, a wage increase, a small wage increase is not quite the same thing as securing a full time job. So I think part of this anxiety that is still being experienced out there in the labor market is that the jobs are there, but they're not exactly these very well-paying jobs with very good benefits, um, with good um, working conditions. And I, and I think on, on that front, uh, there, is, there is more to be, um, to be accomplished. I mean, let's just remember our minimum wage is still 725. And uh, no one can live on a 7.25 an hour. Right. But wages have grown 4.4% over last year. And Great. inflation is down to 6.5% from a high of, what, 9.1%. So the trends are, are looking good. Yes. And when you talk about anxiety, Pavlina, I wonder how much the anxiety over the economy has been drummed up by the media and I mean they keep talking about the skies falling within the debt and with inflation and we know that the Fed they're raising interest rates is, is a job killer and in spite of that you still have these good this good news so why is the perception out there that the economy is so bad when the reality is it's actually a lot better if not you know surprisingly good given uh, the latest numbers yeah, I think this is this is definitely a challenge for the administration. Um, I think for, for such a long time, we have become accustomed to very poor employment conditions that we are not you know, celebrating the good news that we are seeing. There are a couple of cross currents here. I think you're right that there is some issue with with messaging. Um, I think on on the other hand, the wage increases are welcome. They have not, as we know, um, uh, been as high as the inflation that people experienced last year. And so we are right now in this period where prices are coming down. Inflation is actually slowing down as as we had anticipated. You know, the disruptions clearly um, produce some uh, bottlenecks, some supply chain issues. Prices did go up and, and now they're decelerating. And so there is a bit of a lag in the way that people experience this recovery. And, you know, the question here is what what does the public tolerate more, a high unemployment or high inflation? And so this adjustment in sentiment, I think um, it takes takes a while to happen. You know, people are seeing increasing in wages, but they are still not quite enough to cover the, the cost increases in uh, at the supermarket. And so I'm, you know, I'm certainly hoping that uh, these trends will continue. I'm expecting that they will continue. Um, and this is, again, to the surprise of most economists, because they are anticipating kind of a slowdown, uh, uh, anticipating that the Fed uh, will be successful in engineering a soft landing. But I think we need to recognize that we can grow even further, that even despite the low, the low unemployment numbers that we've experienced in the 60s, in the 50s, we had seen as low as 2.6% unemployment. Um, there is there isn't a magic number out there. And I think the labor market can do even better. We can create uh, more employment opportunities and bring people back into the labor force that have exited over the last few years. So, uh, yes, this is both a policy issue, a messaging issue and a lag in the way uh, people experience uh, all this good news. So let me just quote Mark Zandi of Moody's Analytics. 
any concern the economy is in recession or close to a recession should be completely dashed by these numbers. And also, Justin Wolf, as an economist, said, last year involved the biggest misreading of the economy in my lifetime. So again, it leads me to question, where is the doomsday stuff coming from, the dark clouds? Why is there this perception that things are bad, that the economy is bad? And notwithstanding the deficit in the White House in terms of communicating good news, it's still very puzzling, isn't it, that there's this perception that we're in recession, that the sky is falling, etc. Where do you think it's coming from? Well, in part is communication, but the other part is that I think economists themselves have not done a good reading of economic history. Recall, in 2008 and 2009, economists were surprised when the picture was far gloomier than they anticipated. And now they're surprised that the picture is far better than they anticipated. But let's take a look at at history. Um, In 2020 and 2021, The public sector, the government spent about 26% of GDP into the economy in one year. We had not seen this since really World War II. And what did we have, inherit after um, World War II was the Goldilocks economy. This robust public spending, public investment ushered in a, a number of years of prosperity. And so today we had comparable Um, contribution by the public sector to the economy. 26% we hadn't seen in in nearly 100 years. And so um, that kind of stimulus uh, would sure, you know, generated the good news that we are seeing in the labor markets. And we have more room to go because the packages that that President Biden passed, those will, the benefits of those will come in coming years. So I think that history has told us that bold government action can actually generate very good labor market conditions. And yes, we might have to deal with temporary price shocks, but those two can be sorted out. We have, we have historical data, but I think we have uh, you know, a professional amnesia, if you will, and um, we seem to be a bit behind the curve. But good news for the American worker is not necessarily good news for Wall Street, right? Because the stock market fell on Friday. Well, the question is, uh, it, what? how does that, um, are there ripple effects there in the real economy that we need to be seriously concerned about? I think what we learned is that the public sector can offset uh, ripple effects that come from, from financial industry. And so the Wall Street is not an indicator of what's happening to the real economy. Uh, Wall Street is an indicator of what's happening to profits in finance. And... Uh, that's not to say that you know se- serious uh, shakeups in the financial industry are not going to roll through the real economy. But right now, our fundamentals are strong. Right, but I think most of the reporting on the economy on television and in, in the newspapers is focused on Wall Street, is it not? So is that a part of the problem? Is that a, is that a reason why people have this gloomy perspective on the economy when the when the real economy, as you point out? is looking so much better than the Wall Street economy. I think, without a doubt, finance has been the focus of policy and our attention for far too long. Um, And, you know, that doesn't help. I do have to wonder, however, if you uh, are a working family still, you know, having employment, you know, employment opportunities that, you know, the family didn't have stable employment opportunities in the last 10, 15 years. Um, what are the prospects there? Are people able to pay rent? Um, are they able to send their kids to colleges, to, to college, to pay for health care? These have been the three core sources of worry for families. And if we haven't seen major progress on these fronts, on housing, on education, on health care, then there, even though overall the the picture is very good and jobs might be plenty, folks might still be struggling to pay the bills. And I think that is, to me, the driver um, for why folks might worry. Well, just speaking of worry, are you worried about the crazies in the 
Republican House, uh, crashing the global economy and the American economy. I mean, after they booted Representative Ilan Omar off the Foreign Affairs Committee, McCarthy, the new speaker, had a press conference at which he indicated that uh, they would continue what has been described as legislative terrorism. In other words, they would use the threat of crashing the the U.S. and global economy as, as a form of extortion to get budget cuts that they want. That's happening right now. I mean, here we are talking about a, a good economy, and on the other side, on the Republican side, they're prepared to destroy everything. I mean, it's a little insane, isn't it? It is It is really incomprehensible, and that is, uh, to me, a very big worry. I mean, about you know, uh, four years ago, six years ago, um, when Trump was elected, I, I wrote a piece on um, the politics, the thinking of um, of the Republican Party at that time, and there was still this sense of wholesale welfare sabotage, despite all the lip service and all the promises that the economy will create good jobs and bring back manufacturing jobs. At the end of the day, at the heart of those policies is dismantling the the safety net, the infrastructure, the public sector infrastructure that we have built over the last hundred years. And that to me is is a kind of, um, you know, welfare sabotage that undermines our economic well-being. Let's not forget that um, you know, Republicans have been uh, hell bent on privatizing Social Security for decades, and I think with uh, you know at some point they might succeed. Um, I'm I'm encouraged that the American public defends um, Social Security, Medicare, those programs that are crucial. But I also want worry that uh, this dysfunctionality in the uh, in government might at some point generate the loss of some of our most cherished and most successful public policies that we've had. So that definitely is a a huge uh, threat to uh, the economic well-being prosperity that we've generated in the last two years. Well, Pavlina Shanova, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. And again, I've been speaking with Pavlina Cheneva, who is a professor of economics at Bard College and a research scholar at the Levy Economics Institute. She's also the co-editor of Full Employment and Price Stability, the Macroeconomic Vision. And her latest book is The Case for a Job Guarantee. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past